0: Hey, I'm Tom Bartels from growfoodwell.com.
1: And I'm Darren Parmenter with CSU Extension here in La Plata County. We are the Garden Guys, where we help solve some of the mysteries of gardening in the Southwest.
0: And last week, if you remember, we told you we'd be talking about some infrastructure this week.
1: Yeah, and we've kind of talked about the beds, right? Like we have the bed infrastructure and kind of like so we're at that ground level. We've been pretty well developed. So Hopefully you have a good idea of what your beds will look like. But now some of us, how do we make the best use of our space? It's always a
0: challenge. Right. And three different things we're going to talk about in regards to infrastructure today. One is trellising. One is containers for people with smaller, uh, say, patios and constrained space issues. And the third is going to be the all-important irrigation subject. And we'll be talking about setting up different irrigation systems and how you can make it simple or complex. It's up to you. For us in the
1: arid southwest at a high elevation. Irrigation is absolutely critical to a successful garden.
0: So we'll start off with trellising since it's one of my favorite things to do with some non-traditional trellised crops like winter squash.
1: Yeah so this is okay so let's start (laughs) easy okay so I'm going to start. I trellis and I use hog panels or whatever you like it's like a four by four square three by three square those are great yeah, yeah which they're kind of heavy duty they're not going to break down Which you want yep and i will trellis snap peas okay mm-hmm. so that's just something that goes instead of growing on a horizontal plane we're now growing on a vertical plane now peas are easy because each pea weighs an Nothing. ounce <laughs> but now here comes tom stepping it up and say okay I'm not going to grow, you know, 500 peas. I'm going to grow 20 winter squash. 100 pounds, yeah. Yeah. How do you describe what that trellis system looks like? And then if if you have to help that plant with that
0: stability, or have they kind of figured it out on themselves? Well, what's fascinating about that particular variety, winter squash in general, is they tend to be incredible engineers and very good climbers. They have tendrils. Pause. This is the garden word of the week. Tendrils. Tendrils.
1: Yes. Tom <laughs> use that in a sentence.
0: I did. These winter squash will put out tendrils on hopefully a sturdy trellis that you have put up beforehand because they don't know whether your trellis will hold them or not. They go with that understanding that you did this infrastructure ahead of time.
1: So these plants have created some sort of adaptation to... Grab a hold of something.
0: Yes. And they will wind like yep. the old phone cords. For those of you that are old enough to know yeah. that phones used to be attached to the what? wall. You will see that spiraling oh. phone cord. That's exactly what it looks like when it winds around that hog wire. And it's really fascinating to watch how they build the holding structure around where the blossoms form. So they preset the holding infrastructure. Before that fruit even comes out of the, the so they know where stage. the weight's going to be held at. They right? know exactly and where it, they need to build that. A winter
1: squash is going to be well over five pounds yeah, in yeah. a lot of cases. Sometimes eight to ten pounds on yeah. these.
0: So they're building this incredible uh, little pods of really good sturdy infrastructure around the trellis, and then sure enough, that's right where this huge winter squash comes out. Uh, oddly enough. You don't need to hang support structures to hold that squash in place. It will hold that squash until its full maturity without the use of nylons or anything else hanging off that trellis. So the
1: benefits of trellis we just talked about. So if you're limited space, you want to grow vertically in addition to horizontally in one bed. You can do both in one bed, potentially have plants that are growing vertically up a trellis, plants that are in the bed. I've always thought it'd be a good idea to have a trellis like on the south side of your bed so you can shade maybe a crop that will do okay with a little bit of afternoon shade or midday shade like lettuce. So you can have both of those things as long as you have ample irrigation to that bed. You dry the plant out a little bit so Mm -hmm. you don't have that increased humidity, which then reduces your chance of powdery or downy mildew within that plant. And then the fruit itself isn't sitting on the ground right which is a benefit
0: makes a huge difference and i think for me in the winter squash example the biggest difference is had i left that squash to its own growth pattern it would have completely covered easily a 100 square foot bed they're just immense growers and so by putting this simple vertical trellis on the end of one bed I've opened up that whole hundred square feet to grow other things. And yeah. the squash does fine going eight feet in the air and putting up all of its fruit on this, this trellis. Amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean a, a tomato cage is a trellis system. Absolutely. So you're getting those tomatoes off the ground where they could potentially get rot. They can be found by every single little creature that crosses that little pathway and decides to take a sample of your beautiful brandywine tomato. Um, So it pulls them off the ground. Anything that gets that plant off the ground would be called a trellis. Pole beans. Check. Melons.
0: Yep. Cucumbers. Cucumbers are great climbers. Although cucumbers, what I've found is they'll start climbing up a trellis. And then a few weeks later, they'll need some assistance. They kind of get lost. And if you've ever seen those time-lapse national geographic shows with the tendrils of say a, a vegetable plant like a cucumber they put their tendrils out in the air and they wind it around <laughs> and you can see it on a time lapse and they look for something to catch on and sometimes cucumbers kind of get lost out there so you have to redirect them show them where the fence uh-huh. is and then they get back on it so like the the yellow lab of the yeah <laughs> they're the friendly world. but they're not the smartest yeah. tool in the okay. shed all yeah. right gotcha all right yeah
1: so that's the trellis. And then that next part of this is that containerized. And again, when you think about, okay, if I have limited space, all I have is a back patio that faces either south or east or even west, I could grow some stuff in a, in, a, in a pot. I think the typical mistake most people do is, well, there's two. One is they don't have a big enough container and two, they don't water it enough. I'm a firm believer in containers. I grow a lot of stuff in containers, even probably when I don't have to. I like getting that plant above ground. And for me, I grow almost all of my peppers in containers because I think that that rooting zone really likes that heat that they can get through the middle of the summertime. The key component to any container, again, is is to make sure you give it enough rooting zone. You know, and and we go back and we think about just having that garden bed where you put a, a four by eight bed and you plant your tomatoes, and it looks like there's so much space between the tomato plants this looks so sad and pitiful, but then come August, you realize that you made a good choice and not filling that entire bed full of tomatoes. Same thing with a container. You know, one, can, one plant per container is typically okay. I've made the mistake of being like, oh, I could put one in there, let me try three. And almost all those cases in the growing season, I kind of rue the day that I decided to plant three plants into one container.
0: You mentioned this earlier about heat and watering on container planting, and I think there's an outline, there's a a cost benefit analysis of, okay, I have a patio, I don't have acreage to plant things, but I do have this patio, I can put containers out, I can grow some food, so therefore I'm going to, I'm gonna get these big containers. The challenge there is to not have these plants dry out and overheat. Yeah, which can happen. Certainly. And it can happen even if you get the biggest
1: container and you're irrigating every day potentially. You know, those plants, you can water them in the morning before you go to work. They look great. They're happy. They're waving goodbye to you. You come home at 530 at night and it's 90 degrees out and those plants are no longer waving to you. They're droopy. And if you continue that process every day where they're happy and then sad, happy, then sad, you're going to have plants that aren't producing really
0: what you're hoping to get out of them. One of the odd things I've seen with most of these bigger pots, especially the plastic ones, they're all black. Yep. which just absorbs that much more heat during the day. So if you can take some burlap or hide that black from the sun and, and allow the plant to get sun, but not the pot itself, that can be beneficial to reduce that heat load in the middle of the day.
1: Yeah, I've seen people even paint them white before, you know, just mm-hmm. to reflect that heat as opposed to absorbing it.
0: So with irrigation now, that brings us into some of the questions that happen typically this time of year and when added the challenge of supply chain issues, now's a good time to think about what supplies you need for irrigation. Right, how am
1: I gonna irrigate? Like, how am I gonna get water to these plants? Right,
0: because as we know, if you're not really planning a systematic approach to how to water your garden throughout the summer, it's probably going to fail in some some sort of yeah, way.
1: There's a very good chance that's going to happen because
0: watering tends to be the biggest crisis when plants get interrupted with their watering regimen. That's the easiest place for them to go into stress, attract pests and disease, and then you've got all these problems. And then you get the wrong idea that gardening's hard. Right, and it's just a like day one. Like day one, yeah. your plants
1: are going to be stressed, yeah. and especially if you're transplanting, because we're transplanting. Typically towards the end of May, first part of June, mm-hmm. which begins our roughest month. It's our most weather intense month in terms of temperature and, you know, sunlight and lack of moisture. So you better have your irrigation system dialed in and ready to go, you know, when that, when that season starts.
0: So what are the different types of irrigation systems you've seen out there? And uh, let's talk about some of the pros and cons.
1: So the, and the easiest is a hose. Just hand watering. Yeah, with hand water. What the thumb over the end of it, right? Like that's the easiest. The really
0: low tech with the thumb. Yeah, spraying with yeah. the thumb on if the end If you ho- take the, the step
1: part. up, you get the nozzle, like the you know the the nozzle you kind of attach to the end that has the fourteen different settings, and you Use accidentally it. turn on blast and you blow all your seedlings out. Yep, yeah, done that. Yep, that's the easiest one. It's probably the most inefficient, but probably the most economically viable one. It's the cheapest one potentially.
0: Labor intensive.
1: Yep, and you have to be there. Right. And typically when we water, you know, a lot of times that's the end of the day, like after work, six o'clock. It's not the best time to water our garden because we don't want that water to hang out all night. And that's when disease and insects start to come in. What would be the next step? Let's go into a sprinkler system, right?
0: So, Like an oscillating
1: sprinkler. Yeah, like the yeah. ones you'd run under when you were a kid. Again, yeah. back to the days where phones were on cords, we used to have these sprinklers yeah. that would kind of go back yeah. and forth. Before we
0: had social media... <laughs> that was our entertainment. Yes, we ran. Go the, run through the sprinkler. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: If you happen to run in the street, so be it. But run, you know, so we get under that sprinkler. Again, so for us, especially here in Southwest Colorado, that's that'll work, but it's, again, incredibly inefficient. Um, wind will pull that water off, and you'll get uh, irrigation that goes somewhere else, and you're not actually getting irrigation to your crop. Evaporative loss. Yep, so that loss to the atmosphere when we have relative humidity. Not the most efficient way. We're watering an entire space when maybe we're only planting a smaller space, which then kind of moves us into those next steps of more efficient irrigation, uh, which would kind of be that drip irrigation system.
0: That's what I tend to advocate most is a drip irrigation system on a simple $35 timer.
1: Yeah, And if you have an irrigation system already installed in your house for, your lawns and your ornamental beds—you know—it's the system on the wall. You can devote one of those valves to your food crop production, and you can change the time and the frequency and all the things just for that one valve. I probably wouldn't install an irrigation system if I was just growing vegetables. That seems like an awfully big expense, and you're trenching, and you got—oh yeah—you know—and then someone's got to come turn it on and blow it out in the fall. Right. And so there are some challenges attached to it. So what Simon mentioned, the simple system on a outdoor
0: hose spigot, mm-hmm. could work really well. Yeah, for those of you that don't have big systems installed, I would never, you know, advocate putting one in. It's relatively unnecessary if you're just watering a small garden because you can do it with a small hose bib and a simple timer. You just instead of taking the hose with the hand wand on the end of it, you then shift your schedule where you don't have to be there to water the garden, install the timer on the hose bib. And with the various stages, the sprinkler, et cetera, you can work it to whatever level of complexity you want. So you could do a simple uh, half inch supply line that connects to your hose and that feeds a very simple pattern of drip lines that go off in one or two or 20 beds or you can get more complex with different zones. And there's various purveyors of drip systems that can sell you all kinds of systems that you put together yourself, basically. It's not high-end plumbing. It's very simple or, yeah. you know, it's it's very simple attachments where you just put them together. Yeah, most yourself. of
1: them are male-female female type attachments yeah. and a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, plumbing tape or whatever. It yeah. Is so things don't leak. So let's start at that spigot. So for those of you who are trying to imagine what this looks like, we start at the outdoor spigot, that's step one. Yeah. That's where we turn on and off. Attached to that spigot is then what, the timer?
0: Uh, the first thing would be a pressure reducer, ah, okay. which is a very simple coupling that you can buy at the hardware store. It's about two inches long, and all it does is it takes the pressure, which is roughly 60 pounds per square inch, uh, a 60 PSI amount of water coming out at that pressure from your house, is typically too much pressure for a standard drip system. The drip systems, most of them out there, drip tape, etc., are low pressure systems. They work on low pressure and your house system needs to be stepped down. And that's what that pressure reducer does. It brings it down to about 20 PSI. If you ever want to figure out if
1: you have too much pressure, install this system and then put like um, soaker hose on one of your things on, a, on an outlet, and it'll get really big, and then it'll shoot off like a balloon. Yeah. You know that there is too much pressure. Right. Okay, so you start Adapter with the pressure reducer. Yep. And then you go to?
0: There's typically a filter on filter. the end of that. So it, it pre-filters that in case you have any rough water source. Typically, off a home system, it's already going to have a house filter on it. Um, so it's not too big of a deal. But drip lines tend to have very small laser-cut slits in the lines that can, over time, get plugged with silt, Rust, other things that might be in the water. Where do I
1: put my backflow preventer at?
0: Backflow preventer would be the right in that same chain of adapters before the drip system. And what that does is, in case you have back pressure coming the other way, it doesn't take any untreated um, water in the hose material in that hose and send it back into your house line for you to potentially drink. That or- you would then drink. So there are about three different adapters on that hose bib. And then you've got a supply line that could just be your hose proper, taking it out to your gardens if it reaches. Or you could buy a roll, say a 100 foot roll for 20 or 30 bucks of half inch supply line. Now, there's no holes in that line, it just gets water from point A a, to point B. It's just a pipe, it's just just essentially flexible pipe. Cheap pipe. You can put it and dig a little trench with your garden hoe or put it along a wall, it doesn't need to be buried really. And that just gets it out to your garden. Okay, and so then we get it
1: out to the garden, and then we just supply it to the plant. So we can do that either with something called drip tape, or with we call spaghetti tubing, which is like really thin, like that eighth-inch stuff that you kind of put the little you press the little uh, adapter into the half-inch or quarter-inch supply line, and then you run it to an individual plant. Right. Right. So we can have different options that come off that supply line to get water at a pretty efficient rate. To any garden bed that you're trying to irrigate.
0: Exactly. And we actually have a caller with a question related to this. Someone's calling us? Yeah. Hold I on. I not even hear the phone ringing. Hold on. I think we have them on the line. Are you there?
2: I'm here, guys. First of all, what's your name? My name is Marshall, and I want to talk about irrigation, I guess drip irrigation. And I've tried a couple things, but, uh, well, I've tried a couple rudimentary things, but I don't really have a system that works. Um, so I, I want to to ask you what you guys use and uh, some of the details.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about your garden space. What do you got running? How many square feet? Are they raised beds or what's going on out there?
2: Yeah, I have two raised beds that are, what are they, four by 16 and some smaller raised beds. But those are my primaries. And uh, I've done everything from, you know, before I can turn my sprinkler system on, I do hand watering. And I use a little bit of a hoop house just to get some greens going early. But then, you know, as temperatures come up, I start using my irrigation system. And um, I tried to do a makeshift system by putting pinholes into some PVC. (laughs) But that only works a little bit. and, And the length is an issue. I don't have a professional drip system. And I have problems with, you know, things at the end of the line not getting enough water, uh, and things early in the line getting too much water. So, pressure. I'm really curious. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious about being able to have a consistent pressure and uh, consistent you know, yields because of that.
0: Right. So, it sounds like you have a problem of pressure over distance.
2: Correct. Yeah. I think that'd be a good way to put it.
0: Which is a common occurrence if people are kind of doing a makeshift. Um, you know and all kinds of ways to do this with different types of tubing pvc et cetera, and drilling holes every so many inches et cetera. and some of the trouble you run into there is you it's hard to be consistent with how much water is happening on the first 10 feet versus something 60 80 feet down the line um, and one of the beauties of drip tape uh, or many different types of drip systems even the quarter inch lines is more consistent pressure over distance.
2: Let me ask you a question about the uh, equalizing the pressure, because um, again, I have no experience with good, uh, you call it drip tape or irrigation hose. Um, but what I'm curious about is what, what my uh, realistic expectations are for how far I could run that. And then also, if I was gonna maybe want to run an area and then have that does have you know holes in it or the drip system, and then have a blank spot that extends it out where I don't have a bed, but then get to a bed that's farther on past that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, how, what are how does what are some of the limits of what you can do?
0: Well, in that particular scenario you just mentioned you want to take a, typically a half inch supply line it sounds like at a domestic scale in someone's backyard for instance and you would run a separate supply line to that gap in the system you don't want to run through drip tape and then continue it through a supply line with no holes to another drip tape
2: back to drip tape yeah, I, yeah. I, that makes sense to so you yeah. just
0: add a separate you know hide a line behind some fencing bring it around to the other system and just have a half inch supply line that then connects to some drip tape by the time it gets to whatever beds are in the more distant location.
2: Well, okay. So let's get back to forgetting the scenario where we, where we have a segment in there. Let's get back to, uh, the initial run. Is there a, a length limit? And is there a limit? If you have like, uh, I guess it was called a manifold where you have maybe four of those in parallel. What, what are some of the limits of what, how much you can do?
1: Well, some of the limits are going to be distance. Some of the limits will be pressure that are coming off that spigot or out of your system. And then also how many either drip tape, you know, perforations you're doing, how much of that quarter inch tubing or one eighth inch, you know, what we call spaghetti tubing are coming off there. So that system is going to kind of tell you at the end of it, how much you can actually put onto one system. And, and at some point you'll probably figure it out. Like I can only put eight lines of drip tube, that are 50 feet each. That may be the max that you can put on that system. The system is going to tell you how to do it. Kind of my thing is I don't would never do anything over 50 feet, you know, as far as a run is concerned.
2: I I had an initial conversation with somebody a couple of years ago at a hardware store about the initial pressure that you might need. And we were talking about uh, something you could buy for just a couple of bucks that reduces your house pressure down so you're not starting with full pressure. Tell me about what you would want if you're gonna use drip tape.
0: Most domestic systems at a hose bib will put out roughly 60 PSI. That's a lot. Yeah, and that's a lot, that's too much pressure for a typical drip system. And each manufacturer of drip tubes or drip tape will have suggestions on which PSI supply line to put on their particular systems. And then it gets into the variables of how many lines, how much distance at 20 PSI, let's say. How can you have consistent pressure over distance? And then you start getting into your manifold question, which is, oh, maybe I have three different lines on this system, all sharing 20 PSI to equal the 60 PSI coming out of my house system, right? So then you can run three systems at 20 PSI and they all do their full runs at equal pressure. So there are too many variables to actually answer that clearly. Each system has its own idiosyncrasies. And one of the caveats there is, you will need to go to the hardware store at least four times to get those extra widgets.
2: Right, yeah, because <laughs> it's plumbing. It's plumbing. It's plumbing. Yeah.
0: Uh, There's... Fill, fill
2: your gas tank, yeah. <laughs> so let's start there. I got a four foot wide, um, you know, raised bed. 16 feet long, how many drip lines would you have running down that?
0: But it really depends on what you're planting each year. What I tend to do is put a supply line across the head of the bed, and then each year they make those little goof plugs, is what they call them, that you can plug. Which will always leak. Yeah, they do leak a little bit, and you're gonna get some leakage, but not much, you know, less than 1%. So, and then you can choose, let's say you're having nine inch spacings on some lettuce plants or something. As opposed to tomatoes, which means, you know, you've got 18 inch spacing. So um, each year you might be rotating different crops in there, which means, oh, I unplug the four or five lines that I had in there last year. And now I only have two or three lines in that four foot bed because I'm growing uh, crops that need a little bit more space around each plant. And then you just replace the goof plugs in the holes that were from the previous year. So you can just augment it depending on what you're planting each year. Now I'm gonna ask you a question because I'm I'm looking for outside references because I'm biased myself. Do you like having it on a timer versus doing it manually each day or two?
2: Oh yeah. I mean there's no question. The timer is so so much better. I just have to be uh mindful to kind of tune into changing it a little bit over the season if uh you know, maybe it needs a little bit more water. I, you know, it's not entirely automatic. You have to kinda of check in. But yeah, I mean there's no comparison. Manual watering is a total pain in the
0: ass. Agreed. Agreed. The way I like to look at it is it moves you from being an employee of the garden to a manager of the garden.
2: Yeah. You get a pay raise. Yeah.
0: You get a pay raise and you just kind of check on things. You monitor the progression of the season, but you don't have to get yanked every time to have to go do the watering. It's when you choose to check on the efficiency of what's happening.
2: Yeah. So, so let me ask you about like with this drip tape, does it sit right on top?
0: It typically sits on the top of the soil. So it just uh, waters the root zone itself. So it's not hitting the leaves and you get less waterborne illness. There's a lot of benefits to it, but I typically, once things are set in the bed, I will put a layer of mulch over the entire system. So now you have a drip system that's not evaporating once that water comes out of the drip
2: tape. Well, well, this kind of leads into my next question because I have in the past looking at that, you know, early bare soil before the tomatoes have matured and whatnot and thought, oh, I want to cover that somehow. So I put down like little pieces of cardboard or medium-sized pieces of cardboard in places. I haven't really used mulch in my garden, and uh, but I put down uh, pieces of cardboard to kind of do the same effect, do some shading, and – it's okay that that gets wet. I thought worms will love it, and I put little rocks on top of the cardboard because we have we get winds here. Um, and
1: why do you um, put yeah, the I, cardboard so, down? I guess I'm confused. Why you put the cardboard down?
2: Uh, because I'm trying to keep that bare ground uh, just from just getting killed by the sun. You know, I'm just trying to give it a little bit of uh, cover.
0: So why not? Uh, do you have any leaves around your property?
2: I've got leaves.
0: So why yeah. wouldn't you put leaves there?
2: Well, my concern has been that uh, because later in the season, you know, we have pretty high temperatures here, but later in the season, come August, I get like a leaf mold on some of my, like the squash suffers. Tomatoes do pretty pretty well, but I'm trying. My concern is that if I introduce leaves back in, uh, that I might be, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this assumption, but I was thinking that might might not be a good solution for uh, encouraging leaf mold. Are those, um, are those not connected?
0: Well, I would guess you're getting a powdery mildew. uh, Yeah,
2: powdery mildew, that's what it is,
0: yeah. Yeah, which isn't necessarily related to the, just the
1: leaf mold. It's related to the humidity levels around wherever you're at and rainfall that comes in the afternoon and irrigation and increased relative humidity of the plants, you know, canopy. Those two won't be related
2: and and what would what would be the mulch that you would what type of mulch would you recommend
0: if you have some mature compost on the property that's always if you have access to it the best mulch to put on any garden bed so that you just actually layer the compost right on top of the drip lines yeah let it run and that'll break down even further and feed the soil food web so you've got a, a multiple benefit situation and it's better than leaf mulch it won't blow away it's just a really good insulator from temperature swings it keeps the soil cool during the hot months and it's constantly there to feed the worms and the soil so thank you so much for calling in
2: it's cool i really appreciate it i love your show awesome
0: okay we're running out of time on this episode but remember to get those three infrastructure points for your garden we've got Trellising, which is really advantageous. Now is the time to build it. You don't want to be building it later on when the plant is already halfway grown. We
1: want to do containers. If you want to try to grow in containers, remember the two premises of get a container that's big enough for the plant and to make sure you have an irrigation system that
0: is watering that container efficiently. And don't be afraid of automating your timers for the irrigation. It gives you a lot more flexibility to leave town and come back You didn't have to cash in all these favors to have someone water your garden every day. And it just makes it a lot easier. The plants will like it better to have consistent watering. So automating your irrigation is a really great way to go.
1: Yep. Direct the water to
0: your plants. Good premise. Keep it simple. You get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. We'll see you next week.